Hello, this is Brett Martin from the podcast at Chesbro Baptist Church. This is our Wednesday night Bible study. We are going through the book of Galatians, and this is Galatians chapter 3, part 1. We'll call this the faith of Abraham. Please enjoy. And uh, we're starting in it tonight, Galatians 3 and verse number 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? And basically what Paul is saying here is, you know, um, how can you be fooled with all the evidence that you've seen? How can you be fooled? And, you know, I can tell you firsthand it's very disheartening when you hear that somebody has lost their faith or has went down a wrong path after they maybe were raised up in the truth and they knew the truth and they lived the truth. And then you hear, you hear sometimes Christians turning to atheism or Christians turning to Mormonism or turning to Jehovah Witness. And it's very disheartening to hear that because it's like you had the truth, you had Jesus, you had the truth, and then you were raised up in it. And then when you hear that they turn their back on, it's very disheartening. I heard about a pastor who pastored a, a large church and then he just up and resigned one day and declared he was an atheist. He turned his back on the truth he was raised up in. And I, I can tell you personally that there was a younger man who... Um, uh, when I was a teenager, he was a kid, but he, we went to the same church, and um, I was a helper in the children's church, and he was a kid in the children's church, and man, he was, he was Bible smart. I mean, this kid, he won every single Bible drill, every one of them he won, and when it came time to play the games, we had Bible trivia questions, he had the, he had the, the answers memorized. We had to play once so he could win, because he always won the first time. <laughs> then we had to set him aside and play again so everybody else would have a chance. And uh, you know that's what we had to do for him. And then he grew up and got a little older and just turned his back on God. And it's very disheartening uh, to hear that. And um, you know it's doubly sad for the Galatians who had the truth and turned their back on the gospel, it was doubly bad for them because they were close to Christ. They were just a few years out from the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Listen, these Galatians, they had apostles. You know what that means? That means they had eyewitnesses of Christ that were still there and still alive. They had eyewitnesses of Christ and they still turned their backs on the, the true gospel. Now, the word bewitched here, when it says they were bewitched, that gives the idea that they, they weren't turned away by reason. They weren't turned away by sound judgment. It's more like they were turned away by fascination. It's more like somebody charmed them away from the truth. A slick tongue, a colorful argument. Which goes to show you that these false apostles that Paul was fighting against were very, very convincing. And any slick, colorful-tongued 
sly guy that's going to pull you away from the truth. He's going to be that way. He's just going to be colorful and going to fascinate you. Oh, well, I was it matches the scripture, does it? <laughs> uh, verse. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Blinky. I like it. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. This only would I learn of you receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? What Paul is saying here is basically I got one question for you. Were you saved by the works of the law or were you saved by the hearing of faith? So what Paul is doing here, Paul is acknowledging that these people that he's talking to, that they're Christians, they're saved. So if they're already saved, what's the point? The point is that even somebody that's saved can teach a wrong gospel and people can go to hell. Okay. Just because you're saved doesn't mean that you can't preach a false gospel and send other people to hell. So that's what Paul is, is fighting against. See, um, and this shows that even children of God can be coerced down a heretical path. Galatians 3 verse 3. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Paul is saying... Is it possible you are so stupid? Is it possible you are so dumb? Paul was there. Paul was like, look, I know you started out on the right foot because I was there. You know, I, I was there. But now you're saying that you made yourselves righteous before God. Because look, when you believe in a work salvation, that's what you believe. You believe that you are the one that made yourself righteous before God, that your carnal, sinful, horrible flesh is what made you righteous before God. And guess what? It can't. And it didn't. Your flesh can't make you right before God. When God deals with you in grace, but then you turn around and deal with God through works of the law, that's foolish. It's foolish. Verse 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He's saying, look, you guys have been through so much. You've been through so much for the gospel already. Are you just going to throw it away? Everything you've been through, are you just going to throw it away? Apparently, these Galatians, they were persecuted and their belief in faith alone, apart from works. They were persecuted. We know Paul was persecuted in this area. It was in the area of the Galatia, it was in Galatia that he was stoned and left for dead. So we can assume that if, that if Paul experienced persecution, that spilled over into these other believers, and they experienced persecution um, as well. Um, but then Paul says, if it be in vain, if it be in vain. Now, what that means is, look, is there still time? Paul is saying, look, there's still time to correct your error. Your error. It doesn't have to be in vain. There's still time to correct it and get it right. Get back on track. Verse five. 
He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Okay, so who supplies the Holy Spirit to us? Obviously, the Spirit is supplied to us by God. God supplies the Spirit in response to faith. God performs miracles in response to faith. However, the Galatians, they were deceived into thinking that spiritual riches and spiritual treasures come from the works of the law as opposed to faith. I'm not going to get these spiritual riches. I'm not going to get these spiritual treasures from God unless I follow the law of Moses. And they're pursuing a works relationship. Now we're going to read the next three verses, verses 6 through 9. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed, so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now, I've preached this before in the main service, but I'll repeat it again. I am not a dispensationalist. I'm not a dispensationalist. I have no problem with dividing up time periods. I've got no problem with that. I do have a problem with somebody saying, in this time period, this is how people got saved. In this time period, people got saved a different way. And in the future time period, people would get saved this different way. I have a problem with that because that's not scriptural. That's not scriptural. Um, most people falsely assume people in the New Testament get saved by grace. People in the Old Testament got saved by the law of Moses. And that's what they and not by grace. And that just simply is not true. It is not true. Exactly, exactly. From the beginning of time to the end of time, people get saved the same way. I've said it before, I'll say it this week, and I might even say it again next week. We're st we'll still be in this chapter. You need three things to get saved. You need grace, you need faith, and you need blood. Grace comes from God, faith comes from us, and blood comes from the sacrifice. No matter where you are in time, you need those three things to get salvation. That's how it was, that's how it is, and that's how it will always be. That will never change. Uh, which, which goes to show here that, that Paul, uh, Paul has to teach this to the Jewish people, um, and it, it couldn't have come at a better, Jesus didn't, couldn't have come at a better time. Jesus couldn't have come in a better time, and, and the reason is, is because Jews were dying and they were going to hell because they lost that faith that was saving them. And instead of having faith in God and faith in the Messiah that was to come, they were trusting in the law and they were trusting in the tradition and they were trusting in the fact that they were the descendants of Abraham and their faith went away. And so now they're going through the motions of this sacrifice that didn't mean anything because there was no faith behind it. 
These Jews were dying and going to hell, and I honestly believe that that's why Jesus came when he did, because the Jews were losing that that was saving them. They were trusting in the tradition, and they were trusting in the law. They were going through the motions. Look, not only does the New Testament teach it, but the Old Testament also teaches that everyone who is saved is saved throughout history the same way. And that's, you know, uh, through grace. It's by grace, through faith, on count of Christ alone. And in fact, when the New Testament writers, when they argue this, uh, people have always been saved by faith, they quote Old Testament Scripture. They quote Old Testament Scripture when they're trying to prove this. Let me give you an example. Um, the first three chapters of Romans, Paul is, is proving that both Jews and Gentiles are unrighteous. Oh, and by the way, the whole time he does that, he's using Old Testament scripture to prove it. So he spends that first three chapters of Romans saying that Jews and Gentiles are unrighteous, and then he ends it in, in the middle of chapter 3. He says that, that no one, Jew or Gentile, can be made righteous through the law. And that's in Romans 3.20. It says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. The law can't save. And, uh, and here in Galatians, you probably bring up a good point. Paul points us to Abraham. Oh, the Jews love Moses. Oh, they had, you know, posters of Moses up on the wall. But Abraham, you know, Abraham was before Moses. If, if, if Moses was Sammy Sosa, then Abraham was Babe Ruth, okay? Abraham was way before Moses, and that's who, that's who, um, that's who Paul goes to. Abraham was a great source of pride for the Jews because, you know, he's talking to these Jewish Christians who were saved out of the Jewish faith and they used to believe that they were on their way to heaven just because they were associated with Abraham. So who better to prove that works is that salvation is not of works, it's of faith than to go through Abraham. So this is Paul's prime test to prove that salvation comes through faith apart from works. And then, he, you know, he talks about that in other places in the Bible, too. Let me read for you Romans chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. Um, for if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God and was counted unto him for righteousness. The Old Testament, that's not just in the New Testament that says that about Abraham. It says that in the Old Testament, too. The Old Testament confirms that Abraham was saved through faith. Genesis 15, 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Man, that's, uh, that's one of the clearest presentations of salvation by grace through faith in the whole Bible, and it's in the Old Testament. It's the gospel of the Old Testament. And, and this, verse, this verse where it says that Abraham was saved by faith and it was counted to him for righteousness, that verse is quoted four times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans 4, 3, Romans 4, 9 through 10, Romans 4, 22, and then here in Galatians 3, 6. It's quoted those four times. And in fact, in Romans 4, 9 and 10, 
it actually says that, that Abraham was counted righteousness through his faith before he was circumcised. Let me read that for you. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? Uh, when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision, not in circumcision, in uncircumcision. So even Abraham, through his faith, was made righteous to God, and he wasn't even circumcised yet. Um, and now, finally, Jesus Christ, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the symbols of the Old Testament. He's the, he's the fulfillment of all the predictions. I'll read you a couple verses, Luke 24, 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Uh, Romans 3, 21 through 22. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. There's no difference from those Old Testament looking Old Testament saints looking ahead to Christ and the, and the, new, the new Testament saints looking back to Christ, there is no difference in the two. You know, the Passover, all the Passover was year to year was to keep them focused on the one who was to come. Let me read you some, ver some verses from Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, not the, the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Verse Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And then finally, Hebrews 10, 14, for by one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified. Like I said, Jesus stands at the apex of history. The Old Testament saints looked ahead and we look back. Back when I was coming up in school, dates were B.C. and A.D. Before Christ and after death. They are trying to change that now. Now it's not the same numbers. It's B-E-C and A-E. They're trying to change the letters because they don't want to associate it with Christ. Last I checked, it's still 2020, though. <laughs> the year calendar, it still starts with Christ. The world leaders aren't going to get together and say, hey, we don't want to be associated with Jesus. Let's start over at year one. They're never going to do that. Mm -hmm. But as soon as they walk outside those buildings, days, <coughs> the time has not changed. Mm -hmm. That's what they're trying to perceive it to be. Mm -hmm. And everything else has moved on and recognizes. 
you know, they can, they can say it in their synagogues all they want, but they, when they write out a check to pay their power bill, what date do they write on it? So, you can't get away from it. Verse 10. For as many, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in, this, in the book of the law to do them. Okay. <clears throat> These Christians from a Jewish background, they believed that living under the law would give them a blessing. I said, okay, we're still going to live under the law of Moses because obviously God's going to bless us for living under the law of Moses. But they were mistaken. Living under the law would not bring them a blessing. In fact, living under the law actually led to a curse. Led to a curse. I mean, it's not hard to see how, Christ, how those Jewish Christians, how they believed that living under the law would bring a blessing. I mean, there's plenty of evidence to support that in the Old Testament. Psalms 119.1 Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Psalms 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. So there's plenty of, 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 of scripture to support that. But Paul's not trying to say here that the law is a bad thing. Paul's not trying to say here that the word of God is wrong. All he's saying is, is that the law was never, 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 ever, ever intended to be the way we are made righteous. It was never intended to be that way. Even when it was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, it was never intended to be the way in which men are made righteous. Why in the world, if, if the law was how we were supposed to be righteous, why would he put in it an atoning system? Why would he put that atoning system in there to atone for the law? Because he knew we couldn't keep it. When he gave us the law, he knew we were physically incapable of keeping it. That's why he, he wove into it an atoning system, which, by the way, looked forward to Christ, because he knew that we were physically unable to keep it. Now, Paul points to Deuteronomy 27.6 here. This, uh, uh, he, he, uh, he quotes Deuteronomy 27.6 when he says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. That's Deuteronomy 27.6. Okay, if you're going to be justified by the law, you have to do two things. Number one, you got to do it. You got to do it, not just know it, not just love it, not just teach it, not just want it. You have to actually do it. Second, if you want to be justified by the law, you not only have to do it, but you have to do it all. You have to do it all, not just some, not just more good than bad. You have to, from the beginning, do it all. And guess what? All is a lot. All is a lot. When you were a, a baby, when you were a toddler, you broke the law and you didn't even know you broke the law. Okay? The law is 
a lot. And if, if the law is your path to God and you don't do it all, you're cursed. You're cursed. Seeking a blessing under the law is pointless because the law brings nothing but a curse. Verse 11. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for the just shall live by faith. Now, Paul has already proven this point with Abraham, but right here he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, okay? Habakkuk 2.4, but the just shall live by his faith. Now, these words from the prophet Habakkuk are some of the most important and most requoted uh, words in the New Testament, okay? This phrase, the just shall live by faith, is quoted, it's requoted three times in the New Testament. And each time it's requoted, the context in which it's requoted focuses on a different word of the phrase. So um, in Romans 1.17, where it says the just shall live by faith, the emphasis is on the word faith. Romans 1.17 says, says the just shall live by faith. Faith, that's the emphasis. In Hebrews 10.38, the focus is on the word live. The just shall live by faith. And then here in Galatians 3.11, the focus is on the word just. The just shall live by faith. That's a sermon right there. Y'all gonna, gonna probably hear me preach that one day. Okay, I'm just letting you know now. So when, when I start teaching this, I was like, oh, he said he was going to preach on it. That, that's because sermon coming one day. Uh, verse number 12. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Now, this little phrase right here, and the law is not of faith. Um, this is going to lead me down a little rabbit hole right here. Because um, if you remember my Calvinism message, okay, for me, this is the nail in the coffin when it comes to Calvinism. If faith is not of the, a work of the law, if it is not a work of the law, then it is something that an unregenerated man can do. Yes, I can do no good works to go to heaven, but... I can have faith because faith is not a work. It is not a work of the law. And, you know, and, and you, talk, you tell that to a Calvinist, they'll concede. They'll say, oh, yeah, I know, I know that faith is not a work, but they don't realize what they're saying when they admit that. You see, because a Calvinist believes that you're regenerated and then God gives you faith saving faith to believe okay F saving faith is not a gift of god now that's not to say that god doesn't give us any faith at all the bible talks about god giving us measures of faith to help in our christian life when my faith is low god can can give me strengthening faith but the actual saving faith Okay, that comes from me. They say, oh, well, you know, faith is a gift of God. And if faith isn't a work, then I can say, well, you know what? Even as, if God's 
if, God, if faith is a gift from God, I don't need that. I don't need God to give me faith. Because it's not a work, I can give God saving faith on my own. Okay? Faith is not a work. So I was talking to a Calvinist recently about this. And he hit me with this. And this is a new one that I hadn't heard. And so that's why we're talking about it tonight. He, he, he hit me with this. Let, let me ask you a question. Can, um, does having faith in God please him? I thought, well, yeah. Having faith in God pleases him. I can please God when I have faith in him. So then he hit me with Romans 8.8. 8. Romans 8.8 8 says, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, that verse by itself sounds like he got me. Sounds like he done backed me into a corner because people, people that are in the flesh can't please God. That means I'm depraved. I can do nothing good. And God has to regenerate me and give me faith for I can even have faith in him. That's what Calvinists believe. Okay. So he, you know, he said, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So it, in and of itself, it sounds like the Calvinists shut me down. But remember what I told you in my Calvinism message. You can pick apart any argument that a Calvinist has with two things. One is context, and two is an established biblical principle. And sometimes you can use both. And right here, what we're going to use to pick apart this Calvinistic argument is context, okay? If you read the verses before Romans 8.8, 8, you read all those verses and chapters before Romans 8.8, 8, he's talking about the saved. He's talking about a believer, okay? And so um, when you are saved and you live in the flesh, which you can do, don't believe me, look at Lot, Lot was saved and he lived in the flesh the last of his days. If you are saved and live in the flesh, you cannot please God. And, and that's true. All of Romans 6, Romans 7, and, and, and Romans 8 up to verse, 10, or verse 14 is all about the believer. And then after Romans 8, 14, he talks about the future of, uh, of, of the believer. Um, so let's, let's look at these verses here. All right, so this is Romans 8, 7, and 8. It says, this, this, is, this is the Calvinist argument. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now that's what the verse says. Now, remember, when a Calvinist reads Scripture, he reads Scripture through a different lens. They read Scripture through a different lens than me and you do. So when a Calvinist reads this in the Bible, this is what, he, this is what, they, this is what they read. They look at that verse and they read it as because the unregenerate mind is enmity against God. For it cannot believe the gospel of God. Neither indeed can it or will it want to. So then they that are unsaved cannot believe the gospel. That is how they interpret this verse. That is a wrong interpretation. Carnal mind does not automatically mean it's talking about lost people. 
Why in the world would you spend three chapters talking about the saved? These two verses talk about unsaved people and then jump right back on saved people. Okay? It's all in the context. It's, it, it, it's all together. Okay? Um, look, when you get saved, guess what's still a part of your life? Your flesh. Your flesh is still a part of you. It drags you down. Your flesh is, your flesh is natural. Your flesh is carnal. Your flesh cannot please God. Your flesh is enmity with God. Our flesh is not subject to the law, nor can it be. But, Romans 12, 2, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may uh, prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. See, my flesh is carnal, it's natural, it's sinful, but you know what? If I have the Spirit of God, I can choose to let the Spirit of God renew my mind. And then as the Spirit of God does that, then I can do His will. And then I can please God. You'll attest today that there are saved Christians today that are backslidden. They are backslidden, and they are not doing what they should be. They're living in the flesh. Are they pleasing God? No, they are not. Because they are not allowing the Holy Spirit to renew their mind in order for them to please God and do the will of God. And I will always point back to this example of Lot. Lot did what he did with his daughters and had those incestual babies. And guess what? There is not any evidence in this Bible that Lot ever repented. In fact, Lot's descendants became enemies of God. But the New Testament says that Lot is in heaven. He was just Lot. Okay? You can have backslidden Christians. Okay, the Bible talks about, I was, this has come to me earlier, I was talking to Ms. Charleston. The Bible talks about God chastising his kids, okay? You know, if the kids never mess up, who's he going to whip, you know? So, yes, our flesh, so this carnal mind in Romans 8, 7, that's not talking about the carnal mind of an unsafe person. That's talking about the carnal mind of a backslidden Christian. Okay, which brings us back to let's get jump back out of the rabbit hole back on track now, which brings us back to our scripture is if faith is not a work of the law, then it is something that an unregenerated man can do. So y'all know me in Calvinism. I just had to go there. Um, you, you could you would have to say that deathbed confessions are not real if you believe that. Because someone who has never really studied the scriptures but they are saved at the last moment they're not going to have a regenerated mind other than the faith that they just gave or produced mm -hmm. in order to believe that Jesus Christ is real so yep. their mind would com completely be carnal at that point so you couldn't have a deathbed, con a deathbed conversion mm -hmm. if that be the case which so where's the man on the cross it, I, which my, my mind was going to hmm Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't give the, I mean, the, the thief on the cross didn't have an opportunity to regenerate his mind, all things biblical, 
as well as someone who has a deathbed conversion, they don't have an opportunity to study and read God's word to re, you know, renew their mind. So that would take away that ability to say that, you know, you would have to say that that doesn't exist if you believed it that way. Mm -hmm. um, yes, uh, when, when you get saved, you are a new creature in Christ. But you, you still can't pretend that your flesh isn't a part of you. It still is going to weigh you down. Wouldn't it even be safe to say that at, we're all technically still have carnal minds because we have flesh? It's just a point of how carnal is your mind and how, how godly is your mindset, depending on how much you study or how little you study. Mm -hmm. Which would mean, you know, that would go to, to, to me, make it more of an understanding <coughs> as to why a Christian would be backslidden because they're not renewing their mind. And if you understand what I'm trying to say. Right. You know? mm -hmm. So at some point, we all still have a, a, a bit of a carnal mind. Because mm -hmm. if we didn't, we wouldn't sin at all. Right. You know? Ms. Charles, over you. I was just going to say, when we think about carnal mind, most of the time we're thinking actions, we're thinking about, you know, things like you talk about a lot, those sorts of things. When we think about carnal mind. Um, to me, that means a carnal mind is, like you said a while ago, we still have the flesh. When we take it upon ourselves to do things and not consult with God, we are working in our flesh, which is the same thing, I feel. I mean, we're not, we're not studying his word to see, you know, how should I react? And we already know that in Hebrews he tells us that without faith it's impossible to please God. So if we're not if we're not acting in our faith, we're acting in our flesh. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that you know. It's like we always want to categorize sins. Well, murdering people is a bad sin. Bigger than a lie. Mm -hmm. Sin is a sin. But still, you know that. I never thought about it before until right now when we're talking mm -hmm. about all this. The light bulb just came on. Look at it like Lot, not Lot, uh, Lazarus. Lazarus, he was resurrected out of the grave. He hopped out in his grave clothes, and they, Jesus said, loose him. Grave clothes were taken off. Now, how much sense would it make for Lot to go around the rest of his life hopping around like he was still in his grave clothes? And I, I, to me, that's what... 
kind of what a carnal Christian, like you said, would, would be. Is, uh, you know, yes, we're saved. We have the Holy Spirit. But you can quench the Holy Spirit. The Bible says you can quench the Holy Spirit. And you can grieve it and quench it and make it to where it quits talking to you. That doesn't make you unsaved. But it, it, it does make you... Right, it does. So, I mean, if you're, if you're sinning and you're, you've allowed these things to come between you and God, you know, he's not going to bless you. He's not going to bless disobedience. I mean, we know that for sure. So could, would you say that carnal and flesh are interchangeable words at this point? I, yeah, I think so. That's carnal. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Like carnal. Right, carnal, fleshly, ungodly. I, I look at them as synonyms, yeah. all words for the same thing. I had an old preacher tell me that we all have two dogs living in us, one evil, bad dog, and one good dog. He says, which one you feed the most is what's going to win. That's kind, of what I was, that's kind of what I was getting at with what I said. I just didn't say the dog part. Yeah, well, I, was think, I was thinking of the little angel. You know how they used to say you had the little devil on one shoulder and the angel on another? Whichever one you feed the most, whichever one you allow to do the most in you mm-hmm. is the one that's going. That's, but that's what I was getting at. We, we're going to talk about next week one of the most divisive words in Christianity. And that is that, that word repentance. We're going to talk about that next week. And a lot of people, what I call repentance pusher. Look, I am not a repentance pusher, okay? And I'll explain what that means next week. But a lot of those repentance pushers, oh, if you don't, oh, you fell off, well, then you were never saved to begin with because you never repented. So I don't believe that. So like I said, when we get to that, you'll know when we get to it. So uh, we'll get to that pretty soon. Um, I think next week. Uh, let's continue. In, if, is that it? Does anybody else want to say anything else about that? Okay. Uh, let's continue with the verse 12. Uh, that man doeth them shall live in them. Here he's quoting Leviticus 18.5. And if it's not, cl- if the point isn't clear to you enough by now, the point is if you're going to live by the law, then you got to live by the law. If the law is your avenue to God, you got to do it. You got to do it all. And it's got to be from the beginning to the end. If not, you're cursed. So far, this has been bad news. We're about to get to the good news. Uh, Galatians 13, 14. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Um, Look, we are physically incapable of doing all the law and never breaking any of it. We are physically incapable, incapable of that. That is why Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law. You know what redeemed means? It means to buy back. It means to purchase out of. Jesus paid the ransom for me and you, and because of that, he bought me out from under that curse. Now, this idea of redemption, it, it came in ancient warfare. 
And what would happen is these armies would go into this foreign country, uh, sack it, kidnap a bunch of people, and bring them back to their country. If they're really poor people, they were just sold into slavery. But if they captured a, a government official or very wealthy person, they would hold that person hostage and say, okay, you have to pay us X amount in dollars to get this person back. So then that country would raise the money and pay the foreign government, the country, and then they would release that person. This became known as redemption. The process was known as redemption, and the price that you would pay would be called a ransom. This, from this, it took root in other areas of society too, where when you had a slave, a slave um, could either be purchased himself or his freedom could be bought from, uh, when another person could buy their freedom. And when you bought a slave's freedom, or the slave bought the, his freedom himself, that process was called redemption. Another area that this came in was executions. People could be executed, and, or they could be, on, be ready to execute it, be on death row, gonna die in a couple days. But a price could be put on their head. And if somebody paid that ransom, the person on death row could be redeemed. And look, when Jesus paid our ransom and he redeemed us, he redeemed us out of slavery from sin. He also redeemed us out of a death sentence. I guess so. I didn't thought about that. But uh, he redeemed us from a death sentence. How did Jesus do this? How did he redeem us? Here's how he did it. Very simply, he, he became the curse for us. He became the curse for us. He stood in our place. He took what was meant for me and you. He didn't just give some of himself. He gave all of himself. Now, me and you know that when Jesus was on the cross, men cursed him. But probably worse than that was the curse God had to put on him. You understand, when all that sin was put on Jesus, God the Father had to turn his back for the first time in eternity, had to turn his back on Jesus. And can you imagine how awful that was for him? Exactly. And you know what? Look, the sins that me and you have done that nobody knows about, those are bad enough. But you think about all the sins of the, the serial killers and all the horrible, like you watch invest, in Investigation Discovery and all the horrific things that people have done. And don't you know when Jesus was on the cross, he saw all of that? No doubt Christ saw all, all of it. And that's how he redeemed us. Next phrase says, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now this is a call back to Deuteronomy 21, 23. That verse says, His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now, this verse is not talking about crucifixion because Jews back then didn't even know what crucifixion was. 
But what it is talking about is that it was an ultimate insult to after you execute somebody to publicly display their dead body. When you execute somebody and you hang them on a pole or you put them on a tree, it was like the ultimate, ultimate insult to these people. It was how you just gave it to them just a little bit more. But even in this, there was grace because the law said you couldn't let it stay up after. So you put it up in the day and it could stay up all day, but before the night was over, it had to be taken down by Jewish law. So even in this last ultimate insult, um, you, there was still some grace in there. And so um, that's, that's what it's talking about. It says that the blessing of Abraham might come. Jesus took our curse. He replaced it with a blessing. It was a blessing of Abraham. Paul already described it in verses 8 and 9. And this blessing is being justified by faith and not by works. Um, this was uh, going down to verse uh, 15. I just got just a couple more pages and I'll be done. <laughs> and the pages are short. Uh, verse 15, uh, brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be a man's covenant, yet if it be confined, confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. When I bought my house, I went into the realtor's office and there was the realtor and there was a bank person and there were people in there and they were keeping the records and they put down my, my little thick piece of paper and I started signing my life away, sign, initial, initial, sign, initial, initial, sign, sign, sign. And when I did that, I made agreement, a covenant basically with them that I would pay X amount of dollars a month and I got to live in my house for the next 30 years, I'd pay this money. And I, but I had to pay for it. I had to pay for it for the next 30 years, but at least I was an escrow. I didn't know what being an escrow was, but at least I was an escrow and I could be an escrow for the next 30 years. Um, now, what would happen if I just one day you said, you know what? I got this little house out in the country. They're not going to miss that, my, that money, that little money I'm paying for my mortgage. Man, I got them big mansions up on Pinecrest and Macomb, and they got that bank's got so much, so many other houses. They're not going to notice my little old mortgage. So you know what? I, I'm just going to stop paying my mortgage. I doubt they'll even miss it. You know what'll happen? One day I'll have a little knock on the door, and there'll be some some nice sheriff deputies out there, and 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 they'll very politely tell me I got to find some place else to live. Eventually, that would happen. Why? Because even a covenant with a man is a serious, serious thing. And if a covenant with a man is a serious thing, how much more serious is a covenant with God? Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed uh, were the promises made, he saith not, and two seeds as of many... But as of one, into thy seed, which is Christ. Paul here gives a little English lesson. Um, and he refers back to the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, where God promised Abraham that in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Paul says, God did not say seeds, plural. God said seed, singular. 
You see, in uh, the Abrahamic covenant, God is not referring to Abraham's descendants. When it says seed, he's talking to exactly. He's talking about a specific seed, a specific descendant. And that specific descendant is Christ. I mean, this, you know, Paul's telling this to some Jews. I think it busted their bubble a little bit. All the time they thought seed meant them. But Paul's like, nope, that seed, that's specifically talking about Jesus. So Jesus is a part of the Abrahamic covenant. Um, so because of this, we, we, we cannot think that this covenant with Abraham, this covenant with Abraham, what didn't somehow over, you know, isn't overruled by the Mosaic covenant. Um, I didn't have a, a space to write it. Can somebody read verse 17 for me? Let's talk about the difference between the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is unchanging. Why? Why is the Abrahamic covenant unchanging? Because the Abrahamic covenant is one-sided. The Abrahamic covenant is one-sided. It's a one-sided covenant, thus it is promised forever. If you read the Abrahamic covenant, there are no ifs. There are no ifs in the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Mosaic covenant is a two-sided covenant. It's a two-sided covenant because um, two people, there's a lot of ifs in the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is two-sided. There's a lot of ifs in it. A couple of examples. If thou shalt hearken diligently, if thou shalt keep thy commandments. You see, in the Mosaic covenant, two parties have to uphold it. But the Abrahamic covenant, it's one-sided. And that one side is God's side. And as such, he will always uphold his word. So what does that mean? That means the promise of a land, the promise of a nation, the promise of a blessing. It is as sure as God is. We become the descendants of Abraham through faith in Christ. Uh, verse 18, this is the last verse we'll go over tonight. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. If this inheritance was, was, was gave to Abraham and was offered on the basis of the law, then it might not be permanent. It might not be permanent because it would depend on whether Abraham kept the law or not. But instead, this inheritance is offered as a part of a promise a promise from God, and as such, it stands forever. That phrase, it says, God gave it to Abraham by promise. The root of that Greek word for gave is the same word for grace. So, so God gave freely by his grace. Abraham didn't do anything to deserve this covenant. God just freely gave it by his grace. Hey, and that word gave it's in the perfect tense. Perfect tense is where a, uh, a past event has present consequences. Okay? So uh, showing that the gift is permanent. Paul is proving that the path to God by faith predates the law. And then he proves it biblically. 
The law of Moses came after the covenant with Abraham, and it does not overrule it. So Paul uses the Old Testament to prove that we are justified by faith alone, apart from the works, apart from works.